get into another game. Like you're on the wrong fields. Like you're comparing yourself to other players who are equally as dumb. Start comparing yourself to people who actually understand the whole nature of the game. And I think that what happens is you become less obsessed with keeping up with this person or that person. And you become obsessed with the, the actual rules of the game, which is where I've gotten to. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Taylor Welch, and I'm telling you, this interview is a little bit longer than I usually do, and it's totally fire. Taylor has been on my radar for about a year now. Um, he's a marketing genius. Traffic and Funnels, if you're an entrepreneur that wants to get ahead marketing, you have to check him out. He also has a company called Sales Mentor, which helps people with sales. And I actually asked him in the interview to talk about the framework, how to understand that. And it's and that alone is total gold. Um, but then 85% of the interview is talking about wealth. Now, Taylor also owns a company called Wealth Cap, which is a fund. Um, and also, I mean, just crazy opportunities for investors and just has a ton of great education. He actually was super generous on the interview. He's like, man, I'll give you a training that goes more into what we're talking about. And so you can check out the training in the link below. If you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, check out um, the show notes. Um, and I'm, man, I just, I went deep. We talked about different rules. We talked, we talked about so many things. I did a lot of research for this because I know Taylor is a wealth of knowledge and I, I really wanted this to be a tight interview. And so I would encourage you to listen, take notes, feel free to re-listen to it again, and then share this with the person that needs to take uh, some of these concepts uh, into their own life. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Taylor. Taylor, thank you for joining the show. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I remember getting introduced to you and you were like this, this traffic and funnels marketing guru. But the person that wanted to make the intro to me was like, dude, not only does he know how to bring in money, not only is he an expert on sales, but this guy understands money. And, and so what I want to do is I want to unpack your story because I think it, what makes you unique is you weren't, you weren't necessarily born into this. Not, you weren't even on the career path to do uh, what right. you're doing now. But I said this before we started the show is, man, I 100% believe that you have like this anointing that you un just understand common sense, I think. Uh, and you are able to articulate it in such a way, whether it's bringing in sales or whether it's growing wealth. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack a little bit of your story to give context. I want to talk a little bit about sales because in the training that I watched you do, it's like, this is super, super powerful. And I want to spend 85% of the time talking about wealth because there's so, I mean, dude, I have notes after notes after notes and we're just going to be fast paced and it's going to be so many, so much fire here. So first of all, thank you for making this a priority and dude, I'm pumped. That's amazing. Can't wait. All right, dude, your story. Yeah. Um, how far back do you want me to go? Well, we'll start, we'll start with the youth pastor. I, I, it's a lot of times I start with how your parents met, but we don't have time for yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's funny because, uh, I was, like you said, I wasn't on the career path to, I didn't study money. I did not study wealth. I did not know actually what entrepreneurship was. We live in a day and age now where everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and everybody wants to work for themselves. But I had a dream when I was a kid to work at a church. I wanted to be a pastor. In fact, uh, my mom asked me 
one time, and I don't remember this, but she told me after the fact, she said, I asked you one time what you wanted to be when you grew up, and you said, I want to be a cowboy preacher because I liked Western movies, and I wanted to preach to the cowboys. That was me as like probably a six-year-old or seven-year-old, and uh, I got my, my dream come true when I turned, I think, 20, 20 years old, 19, maybe 20. Um, I became part-time at a church in Missouri. Then I moved to take a full-time pastor role in Memphis, Tennessee. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way or know someone who's felt this way. It's like you you want something and you spend your whole life trying to get it and then you get it and you realize that it's not really what you thought it would be. Not, Not anything bad per se. It's just, it's not what I thought it would be. And, um, you know, I got married in that time and, I did not know anything about uh, entrepreneurship, but my wife was an entrepreneur. And that's how I discovered entrepreneurship. She was a hairstylist and she worked for herself. She owned her own salon and she was able to work whenever she wanted to and she could do whatever she wanted to do. And I was like, that is pretty cool. And I remember one day I had transitioned off staff from the church and I had gotten into real estate, the worst part of real estate, by the way, property management. It's the part of real estate that, that nobody wants to do, but has to be done you know? And I remember one day, uh, we were a couple of weeks away from vacation. We were going to go with my family to Orange Beach, Alabama. I was making about $35,000 a year. And she said, I wish that you could help me uh, get more clients. Because uh, by that point, uh, she was doing okay, but she wasn't making the money she wanted to make. I said, well, I'll teach myself how to, how to do that for you. I got your back. I'll be the, uh, the knight in shining armor for you here. And I picked up a book on marketing. I took it to Orange Beach and I learned for the first time what copywriting was. I learned for the first time that there was a thing called, you know, advertising and advertising wasn't just Mad Men. You know, that's what I thought is just something old, but advertising was something that you could do today. And the strategies have changed, but there's a book by John Carlton, one of the greatest copywriters to ever do it. And I remember getting back from the beach and being like, we're going to try this. I'm going to, I'm going to find how to write a sales letter and I'm going to send it out to people and we're going to get you some clients. And, uh, she said, okay, I'm down. And I said, well, I need to borrow some money because we didn't have, I had to take it out of her business. So we spent about 300 bucks. We pulled the direct mail list from Memphis three zip codes in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in the suburbs that historically had higher income. So I'm doing my due diligence. I'm working at it. Like I'm actually researching and we sent out this direct mail piece and I, I write it and I half write it, but I have copy it from somebody on the internet and a week goes by nothing happens. I'm like, well, this, I just wasted $300 and $300. You got to think $300 to $30,000 a year. doesn't seem like that much, but it'd be like, you know, it'd be like $80,000 to me now. It was was a significant chunk of what I felt like money. And then the second week, nothing happened. And then it was like 15 days, 16 days later, she got a phone call, booked a client. I was like, this is it. If I can get her clients, I can replace my income through my wife's business, quit my job and stay at home. That was my vision. (laughs) Stay at home, dad. We didn't have any kids, but I was so, uh, I just didn't know what was possible. And you can always tell the people who don't really know what's possible because they will arbitrarily set their goals so low because they have no idea what they could be or, or could become. 
And that was me, dude. That was me in 2014. I was like, you know, I make 35K a year. If I can add 35K a year to my wife's income through her business, I will just sit at home. Easy. Um, and then obviously, uh, that was the spark that lit the match, that lit the bonfire, that set the forest on fire, that now the globe is ablaze. And I couldn't stop. Once I get into it, it was like, you know, I was raised as a musician and that's an art. And when you play, you feel it in your soul. It's something you have to do. It's something that you could do to relax. It's something you can do to get motivated. And I found that business is, is an art form in and of itself. And I just loved to play. No, I couldn't stop playing. And you fast forward through the past six years and it's like, you know, I've now developed a passion for people who are like me, who come from a background where it's like, you know, you, you're raised in church and it's like nothing against churches, but they don't understand money. They don't understand. In fact, you have a lot of prominent Christian leaders today who are like money's evil. And it's like, well, hey, that's probably why you're poor, you know. Uh, but you look at old school, like where I grew up, dude, it's like we, we studied the Bible. And bro, those churches were funded by people, yep. business owners. They were funded by wealthy business owners. And so me and Chris, Chris, my business partner, we've learned the rules because there's a mission attached to it now. And who knows, you know, who knows where we'll end up. So that's probably uh, more than you bargained for, but that's kind of my, my grassroots founder story. And, and here's the reality, Taylor. Like I a hundred percent echo what you're saying. Like mission driven entrepreneurs, like truly yeah. make the world a thing. Yep. So thank you for that. Um, we could talk a whole hour just on marketing and we're not, but I, I would encourage you guys, if you want to get more leads, you want to learn more about copywriting. It's funny. I wrote copywriting equals leverage, which is a yeah. big, big uh, theme in, in what you talk about wealth. Um, definitely mm -hmm. check out what you guys are doing. Um, you, when I heard you teach on, on sales, um, I'm someone that does not think sales is a dirty world. You think money's dirty. A lot of people think sales are like the, the, the lowest of the lowest. Yeah. But you talked about sales in such a way where it's like you related it to a doctor and then you walk through a framework. And I'm, I'm telling you, when I saw that, I'm like, every single person on my team is going to watch this once a month until things dramatically change. And we have a good culture. Um, so I'm wondering if you can do that quickly. And, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it was just so impactful for me that I want to make sure that I can touch it on the show. Yeah, I didn't. I learned, I learned sales from like old school sales pros who are like almost uh like this is why sales gets a bad rap is because when you go through like the the 30s and the 40s and then you transition to the 80s 90s you have two different sales games so like the 30s and 40s is like it's very product driven that's that's where the old school sales like really old school i'm talking like 100 years ago these guys teach you how to sell the features and benefits of the product and really tackle the emotional uh, irrationality of your prospects. And then you transition into the 80s and 90s and it turns around and it goes, it's an opportunity era. So we're no longer selling products, we're selling opportunities. That's where the big stock uh, newsletters come from. And like, you can get rich and you can get rich overnight and everything is opportunity driven. And then you get into the early 2000s and it becomes problem-based. That's where the big consulting companies come from. Like they don't know how to solve your problem. They just know how to communicate your problem. And you're like, well, they can, if they can say what the problem is, they might as well be able to solve it for me. And it's like, is it any wonder that here we are in 2020 and people are like, I just hate being sold to, hate being sold to. Because 
our only experience of sales is like somebody's trying to get me to do something I don't want to do so that they can make money. Uh, but when I really got into it, I realized that sales more than anything else, we're transitioning again in 2019, 2020, 2021, probably for the next 10 years into really a leadership based style of salesmanship where people know what they don't want and they might not even know what they do want, but they know what they don't want. And they're looking for leaders who can be honest with them. And you look at the news, what's wrong with America right now? People negativity. don't know who to believe. Yeah, it's negativity and it's conflicting points of views. And people, at, at the end of the day, people get overwhelmed because they're like, I don't know who to listen to anymore. If you can learn to be that person that is trusted, then uh, it, it will do great power. But like Spider-Man's dad said, with great power comes great responsibility. And so we teach our teams internally that first and foremost, the job of the sales professional is to help the prospects make the best decision for them in their life because everybody wants to move forward somewhere. You, me, anyone listening, there's some area of your life that you're not completely satisfied with and you want to move forward. And as a salesperson, your job is to partner with the prospect, partner with that person, figure out what it is that they want to move forward. And if you cannot help them move forward, you don't sell them. If you can, you, you proceed, but if you can't, you don't sell them. And this is like the ethos of our team is, is uh, to really master sales, you have to first master stewardship. Yeah. To master sales, you have to first master stewardship. And we're not even talking about financial stewardship. We're talking about influential stewardship. You have to learn how to be a good steward of your ability to communicate. A good steward of really a person's hopes and dreams and desires that they're sharing with you on the phone because I don't know about your team, but I know with our team, we have thousands of calls a day and on those calls are not prospects. They're moms and dads, grandparents, kids, people who are struggling in this area or that area who are real human beings with real tangible and intangible goals. And it is a disgrace to leverage a person's problems against them and so we don't, we just teach integrity. We just teach influential stewardship. We partner with people to move them to the next level. And probably 80% of the time, bro, if you want, like this is honest behind the scenes, 80% of the time or more, we are telling someone, this is not the best thing for you right now. Let's put this on pause right now. I'm going to send you a book, read the book. That's the next best step for you. And uh, because of that, you've seen the reputation of traffic and funnels in the industry. You're starting to see the reputation build up in sales mentor and the reputation is just, dude, these guys do it right. And that's really what the definition of sales is to me is like being able to steward the hopes and dreams of your market, partner with them and get them to the next level. If you can do it. I, I, I love that man. And I can relate to that so much because um, a lot of people will come to us with an agenda and they, they have like a half truth yeah. in their brain. They're like, this is what I want to do. And we're like, we're not going to do that for you because I have like the sense of like, I want to, I want you to be a raving fan. Like yeah. you're part of the family and five years is you're not going to be better off. And it's crazy when you say no to somebody, it's like, they actually trust you way more. And that's, that's really what I figured yeah. out. Not yeah. even knowing all these sales techniques is like, I've just figured out. And so that's really cool that you 100%, said that. And it's not takeaway selling, just by the way, it's not takeaway selling. Cause I was on a really big sales trainers podcast 
And he's like, oh, you're takeaway selling. I was like, no, no, no. That, I don't feel like takeaway selling is it. It's just being an integrity-filled person. So I don't want people to get that confused. It's not a tactic. Right, right. Well, it, it's, it goes back to seek first to understand. And like, I think empathy is huge, my friend. And having yeah. empathy just for the person that's uh, across the table or over the phone is, is great. Uh, let's talk about um, when you're on the phone, like the, the system, the framework, um, because I just, I think this is also big. It's like, what is the framework? If you're in sales, if you're an entrepreneur, and a lot of people are entrepreneurs are in sales that are li- listening to this show. What is like a framework that you teach your team as it relates to um, how, how to serve people? And I love the word steward, steward that relationship well. Yeah, it's, it's very simple. Um, there's obviously nuances to it, but it's simple in its approach in that we first and foremost, we want to start with uh, identifying what problems somebody has that they're trying to fix. It wouldn't make any sense for you to go into a doctor's office and they don't ask you what hurts. They don't ask you what's broken. They're just like, you know, hey, Caleb, it's nice to see you. Here's the prescription. It'd be like, well, you're getting sued as a doctor. That's complete malpractice. So Likewise, you don't go into a doctor with a broken arm and they're like, what's your favorite football team? Oh, where are you from? Like, where did you grow? They might, but it's not going to be the main. That's, you're not going to choose a doctor based on having the same alma mater. It's like you have, you have a brain injury and you have a neurosurgeon that's like had one surgery, but he went to the same high school. And then you have a world-renowned neurosurgeon who's the best in the world, but they didn't go to the same high school. What person in their right mind is like, nope, I'm going to pick the, the brand newbie who went to the same. It doesn't make it. That's not how people make decisions. So we don't spend a lot of time with like trying to identify commonalities because that's, that's an old way of developing rapport. And it's really just, it's, it's to be honest, it's leveraging a mental heuristic that humans have and, and weaponizing it. And so we're like, whatever, we just get started with the problem. So it's, Hey, Caleb, how you doing? Um, how's the weather? You having a good summer? blah, 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 a little bit of rapport, just so that it's human nature, but cool. You ready to get started? What, what's broken in your business or what problem are you trying to solve by being on this call? We want to go right into the, the problem first because the problem is why people buy. Um, from there, we want to understand the problem. This is just diving deeper into the problem. Too many, like picture again, you go into a doctor's office, you got a broken arm, and or something hurts and they're just going to poke on it. Does this hurt? Prod it. Does that hurt? Move your arm like this. Does this hurt? What is that doctor doing? He or she is trying to understand the problem. They're putting constraints around the problem. They're trying to isolate the problem. It's not enough to just be like, my arm hurts. And then they're like, here's the medicine. Oh, they need to understand how long has it been hurting? Does it hurt if you do this? What have you tried to, what have you done recently? Why did it start hurting? So understanding the problem and then we switch into the third stage which is understanding the objective understanding the target and in your world this is probably incredibly important because everyone has different goals Mm -hmm. like nobody i i would assume that not everyone has the same net worth goal not everyone has the same asset protection goal not everyone has the same family structure and, and you know like everyone's different so you want to understand the target and you cannot sell to someone with a cookie cutter objective, a cookie cutter target. You have to understand precisely what it is that people don't like and precisely what it is that they do like. And that third phase is about understanding the target. What is it that you want? What's a perfect scenario? What would a win-win be in this scenario 
in this area of your life. Explain that to me. And then we move into the pitch, which is the fourth stage. And the pitch is very simple. We transition to the pitch just like, you know, first of all, you have to be able to help them or you don't pitch them. Yeah. Uh, but if you can't help them, you say, Caleb, it sounds like, it sounds like we can help you get what you want. We've done it before. Would you like to know what that process looks like? Notice the onus is on you. I'm kicking the ball into your court. You get to tell us whether you want us to explain our program or products. We're not just going to throw it on you. Um, and from there, it's a relatively simple landing of the plane. I, I love that. One thing that we're, I'm going to be changing because of our conversation is a lot of times we start with the what you said third is like the big picture. We try to get them to define what they actually want. I, I'm a big fan of like ROR stands for return on results instead of rate of return because we're, that's what you're actually here for. But what we don't ask is why you're calling. Like what problem do you have? I feel like that's a little in your face, but as you explain it, like, let's be honest, yeah. you're calling for a reason. We got to seek to understand before we just start trying to diagnose. 100%. Yeah. All right, man. You ready to jump into this wealth conversation? Let's do it, bro. I, 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 I love this, by the way. And I think you gave a perfect disclaimer in one of the videos that I watched. And I'm, so we'll open up with this. You said that situation overrules the rule. Um, so don't sue Taylor or I uh, when you do something that he says in you go bankrupt. So that, there you go. You got you to be really aware of your situation. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So rule number one, you talk about uh, dig the tree deep. And I really, when, I was, when I was learning this and, and just researching what, you, 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 what your philosophy is, I wrote a big mindset around that. Um, let's take a step back. I know you have three big companies that you kind of fall under. You have your marketing company, you teach people sales, and then you have a company called WealthCap where like you've just become super obsessive about like helping people build wealth. And I think that also goes back to stewardship. You want to give a little context on that before we jump in um, on like what that program looks like. And obviously my listeners will be super interested in like delving deeper into that and potentially working with you. And then I want to just get into a lot of notes that I've t taken and, and really use this time well. Cool. Yeah, where do you want me to start? Just what is WealthCap and how long have you been like teaching this? Because I believe you started in the marketing field and then kind of you, as you made money, you started taking your approach on how you learn copy to how you yeah, learn yeah, yeah. all this stuff. Gotcha. Here's what's interesting about us is my first career job after the church was in real estate. So in some senses, I am, I've just gone back to, it's, I've come full circle. Um, I remember when we first started WealthCap, people were like, man, how did you learn WealthCap while building marketing? I'm like, I didn't. I didn't learn real estate. Well, I, I learned what real estate in 2013, 2014. Um, and Chris comes from uh, the mortgaging world. He worked at a bank. So we both have a little bit of background in the real estate world. Um, WealthCap started, though, for us. like we, we got a big tax bill in 2018 for the 2017 year. And we were like, this is ridiculous. And nobody ever told me that make more money means I'm going to, I can't keep it. You know, like we were just like, what's going on? So we started looking for ways to, you know, legally, uh, you know, I tell people there's three things you can do with your money. You can spend it. Number one, you can store it. Number two, and you can multiply it. Number three, those are the three options you have. So we were like, we need to figure out how to store our money. WealthCap didn't even start for us. We didn't want, care about multiplying it because dude, let's, we spend, we'll spend four, you can spend 400 grand on ads and we'll do 1.5 million in sales, bro. Let's face it. We don't need any help multiplying money right now. Like we don't need more cash flow. 
we need to be able to put money into the ground and not lose it all. So real estate for us was not really a cash flow play. It was a capital storage play. And uh, we started by partnering with a company that did turnkey and they could just, you know, help find us houses. And dude, shortly after starting with them, it was like, man, we know the game better than they know the game. So this isn't really interesting to us um, because we found ourselves just giving them advice all the time on how to find houses, how to, how to build property management, how to actually hire staff and not be, not be bad leaders. And we were like, why are we giving them, we're spending so much time consulting them. We might as well just own the business. So we tried to buy the business from them. They didn't want to sell the business. So like, cool, give us our capital back. And we started WealthCap. Um, and this month we have closed on 20 houses, uh, in the month of July and you know, we close, we'll hang on. So about 2 million a month in residential single family real estate. So that's kind of the, the founding story of WealthCap. Um, if you want me to go any deeper on that, just let me know. No, let's, let's go into, to your rules. And I, I watched one of your videos internally. You were talking to your team. And you were just spitting fire and they were, it was kind of a Q and a session, but you started with like two big rules. And one of them is dig, uh, dig the tree deep, which yeah. I, I want you to talk a little about. And then it's the other one was make every, um, every dollar productive. Yeah. So I'll give you, let me, I've updated that training since then. Um, and so let me just give you, let me give you all three rules real fast is dig the tree deeper. Uh, pay pay for things indirectly and protect the assets. And so kind of making every dollar productive is, is similar to pay for things in, indirectly. But I realized when we started uh, purchasing real estate that every entrepreneur we've ever worked with kind of follows a pattern. They will come in, they'll start working with traffic and funnels or sales mentor. They'll go from a really low income to a really high income and their lifestyle will explode. And then 10 years later, they've become, you know, they've gotten everything they've ever wanted, but they still have to work. Yeah. They don't, their life has not become wealthier. It's just the tree's gotten taller, you know? And so I tell our sales teams all the time, I think that's probably the, the training I was teaching salespeople on that you saw. Uh, you need to be careful that you do not focus your attention on making the tree taller. Because what's happened in my life is in 2013, I made 30, $35,000 a year. And today, I'm not even gonna tell you what we make next month. Next year, we'll do 70 million in sales. And the reality is if you look at my life, it, it has, it's changed marginally but dude, people cannot tell really the growth curve. Um, the tree's gotten deeper. It's not necessarily gotten taller. Our assets have ballooned, but I'm not spending everything that comes in. So the, the principle of dig the tree deeper is if you can limit your lifestyle expenditure while increasing your income, then what you get is you get something called surplus, which is a, a, a dirty word that most people don't have. The government surplus. sure doesn't know that word. The government doesn't know what that means. You, not a deficit, a surplus. And you can take that surplus 
And you can begin to put that into the ground, into capital storage uh, mechanisms that will grow the money. And it doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen in a year. It doesn't happen in three years. But over five years, seven years, 10 years, I just sat down with one of our sales guys, uh, one-on-one. This was actually about a month ago. And the money he's making, I'm like, limit your expenses to what you're doing right now. Because he has all the surplus. And in the next eight years, you'll be pulling about $400,000 a year from your main job, $600,000 a year from passive income, and you'll have a net worth over eight figures. And he was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But the, the key linchpin is you cannot increase your lifestyle every year with the increased income. You have to, lock, at a certain point, the tree can't get taller than the roots or else it just capitulates. So the principle here is create surplus by locking your expenses and taking that surplus and putting it into safe, risk mitigated, we call it hedging, hedged assets that can grow with time and eventually create even more surplus. Then you just build a machine that's out of control. Like you can't spend all the money coming in and that's where you want to eventually end up. Uh, what do you think some of the big problems are? Because I think a lot of people's identity is just in the wrong things. And so we just have this whole world, especially in the entrepreneurship space, everyone's trying to like, like have this persona on who they are. Do you think that's the big problem or is there other problems that you identify and you're like, these are people that are making a lot of money that are broke? Yeah, I think definitely there's a, there's identity issues for sure. Um, I also think that there's just like clarity issues. You know, people don't, you people, who are you comparing yourself to? Uh, cause I'm comparing myself to Ray Dalio. So like, there's no internet marketer that I'm like, oh, they're beating me. I don't, I don't, who cares? Like Ray Dalio you know, runs $20 billion in assets and it's a different level of, of play, you know? So I think the mistake that entrepreneurs fall into is like, they just compare the height of the tree to everyone, but they are not actually looking at the root system. What supports this person? What supports this person's family? You know, like we have today, I have three different trusts, 14 or 15 different LLCs. Um, maybe 30 to $40 million in assets that is spread around inside of this massive asset protection system. Bro, do you think I give a what some other inter internet marketing is do like? No. It just doesn't matter because to me, I'm like, dude, you've got people like uh, Dalio and you know, you've got the, the super entrepreneurs, you've got Elon out there shaking stuff up, like get into another game. Like you're on the wrong fields. Like you're comparing yourself to other players who are equally as dumb. Start comparing yourself to people who actually understand the whole nature of the game. And I think that what happens is you become less obsessed with keeping up with this person or that person, and you become obsessed with the, the actual rules of the game, which is where I've gotten to. But it's a process, man. Like I remember, I remember being very egotistical when we first started making money, and it's a temptation. And I, I came up with this phrase, it's still in a notebook today that every once in a while I'll reference. The ego a person develops when they begin to win prevents them from winning later on. And so I see it like a linear chain, and this is a person's life, right? Well, the ego you develop right here will keep you from over here. And so it's a timeline thing where if you're just getting started, you're just starting to get money, dude, you've got to lock into the right voices. That's really good. Let's talk about don't buy anything directly. 
um, because this one is another one and I, you gave the watch example and you could also give a car example. Uh, it's yeah. really profound. Yeah. I, so I learned one time, this is funny because uh, I, my, the book that I reference a lot when people are like, man, how did you start getting into wealth is Robert Kiyosaki, which is probably everybody. Um, rich dad, poor dad. So reading that a long time ago and being like, this guy's crazy. Like this doesn't even seem possible. And he references an example of if, if you want a new car, what he'll do is he'll call his broker and he'll buy some penny stocks or some, uh, you know, something that's like uh, not, not hedged, but it's growing pretty quickly. He'll grow that money and then he'll take the money back out. Do you remember reading that story? Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we've done the same thing, but we've done it in different vehicles. So everything that I have right now in terms of a toy um, is, is free. It's paid and it's paid for indirectly. So the idea is that instead of just, you know, I can't afford this, so I'm going to go buy it. Really looking at how am I going to afford this with passive income? And then I can get my capital back. So yeah, the, the watch example, um, you know, I, last year I wanted to get a Rolex uh, day date presidential because apparently that's what you do when you make it, which who knows? Um, so instead of buying it, what I did is I took out a uh, interest-free loan. It was a 12-month interest-free loan. And I put a sum of money into a fund, a real estate fund. And the monthly payments were paid for by the fund. And then at the end of the year, when the watch was paid for, what did I get to, t- to get back? The fund, the money. So if I paid 30 grand, is $2,500 a month. And I've got, you know, an X amount of money. Say I have, you know, 500 grand in a fund. I pay the watch off and I get the 500K back. How much did the watch cost me? It didn't really cost you anything personally. Technically zero. It didn't cost me anything. But can I play devil's advocate for a second? Absolutely. It's, there's opportunity costs everything. So you, you still bought that watch. That's money that you're no longer able to grow for you. It's still lost opportunity costs on the decision that you purchase, but I, I get what you're saying. You're like, don't buy anything directly. So get in the habit of having assets pay for things. Um, but I, one, one philosophy that I teach is there's a difference between what you buy and how you buy it. A lot of people like Dave Ramsey combine them. And so you just get mm-hmm. like people that don't really know anything about money that are just walking around with their talking points. Really, you have to, you were going to buy that watch. That's something that you wanted to do. And then you just figured out the most efficient way to do it. Yeah. And it depends on what you buy too, because um, most things that we consume are, are most of the toys we have, uh, we can figure out how to get them to pay for themselves anyways. So for example, that, that, that day date, uh, I could sell it now for more than I paid for it. So really the opportunity cost is kind of going to be wiped out at some point. Yeah. Uh, another example would be the 911. I have a 911 Turbo S and it's such a fun car. And I got a broker. And this is a $220,000 MSRP. It had 1,100 miles on it. And he sold it to me for 180. It's a pretty big discount. And as long as I keep that car under 10,000 miles, then I could sell it at some point in the future, which will probably sell it in the next six months for like 170. Well, let's look at the opportunity cost. It's $10,000. I need to figure out how to come up with $10,000. Or I can come up with the complete sum total of the payments, right? You're arbitraging. So as long as you can pull the money back out of the asset, and some things are different, like we have to eat, we have to have, 
you know, we have to have, we want to have, go to the gym membership. Like we have to buy clothes. But if you look at my lifestyle expenses today, um, my monthly nut that's not paid for by some sort of asset is probably four or five K a month, uh, four or five K a month. And that might sound, depending on the audience, that might sound like, oh, that's actually a lot. Or no, it's not a lot, but two Model Xs, a 911, $600,000 home. We have, I mean, we live well. We're, we're building a new house. We have five acres here in front. It's just like four or five is nothing. But my goal is to get that down to zero. I want my lifestyle expenses to be zero. And to do that, I just can't be buying everything that I want to buy. I've got to figure out how to put money into something that will grow and pay for it from the surplus. And one of the things that Robert Kiyosaki talks about is not saying I can't afford that because that actually is like with the law of attraction, yeah. you like you actually believe that. It's that how can I afford that? And it's you have yep. a couple profitable businesses. You have assets that are doing well and yep. and it just it just empowers you and ultimately goes back to your rule number 1. Your 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 roots are super super deep. Um I want to talk about this because a lot of a lot of people are changing their talking points right now. When it comes to emergency funds, this is where we're, I mean, no one knows what's going on in our country right now, but, and that's a whole nother thing. We could have a whole episode on TNN, but, uh, oh God. <laughs> but that I would lose a lot of people there. So I want to, I want, I want to be productive. Um, but what, when it comes to like COVID, a lot of people were over leveraged. They weren't, they weren't thinking about it the same way that you're thinking about it. I, I've been for a while saying, I would have an emergency fund. I, I didn't articulate this like you do, and I'm changing, but of a year. Now, I know that you, you're, you do not say a year, and you have a difference between cash on hand versus cash equivalents. I want to walk through that because I think, I think especially for entrepreneurs, it's super, super important. So how do you balance being like conservative and not leveraging everything, but then also being really smart with all the money that you have on in, in hand and making sure that it is productive? Yep. Uh, well, and I think it's also different if you're like a business owner or if it's like a personal, because our, our, um, we do, we have a lot of cash on hand for the businesses because my employees want to get paid whether COVID's here or not. Yeah. So I'm like, well, we kind of need it. Uh, and I think that that's another big difference is what's your risk profile and where are you on that spectrum? Because some people are like, man, you know, I don't, I want to be able to like, if we're invaded, I have a bunker and like some people are that crazy for us. We think about it in terms of what access to cash do we need? And does that have to be cash? Because there's a difference between cash and access. Uh, I would say most of your listeners probably don't have a hundred thousand dollars cash buried in a hole in the backyard. Hopefully. Well, that's truly an emergency fund. That's what an emergency fund would actually be. And uh, if you don't have that, then you're trusting in some sense on the current powers that be and the way the banking systems are set up. So really having $100,000 in a bank of cash is the exact same of having $100,000 in credit access with the same bank. Because they're gonna decide whether they give you the money or not. And you may be like, Taylor, that's dumb, I've never, okay, study history please, then come back to us, because banks have in our American history, in American history, banks have run out of cash. They've lost your cash. And what the Federal Reserve did is, when we went off the gold standard, um, there were rules that were in, this is actually before we came off the gold standard, this was like uh, the 20s, there were rules that limited how much a bank could loan in the, you know, the 10 to one thing. 
And then Bill Clinton undid that in 1999. So now they don't have those rules. Friends, we are in a dangerous position when the Federal Reserve and the banking systems that we have can loan 12 to 1, 15 to 1, 18 to 1. And people are like, no, 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 it's 10 to 1. No, 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 1999, we reversed that. So my thinking is that you're already playing with risk whether you want to or not. If you have money in a bank, you are risking it. I'm not saying you should pull it all out. I'm saying it's just to understand my thinking. I would rather have $100,000 invested in an asset and $100,000 in credit than to just have $100,000 cash. Because one is making the sum of money productive while still retaining the, the access. The other is just making the money unproductive. And that's a, that's a big distinction. We call them cash equivalents. So right now, I do not like having money in my bank account. I do not like it. It does not feel good to me. I have rewired everything about it. What I like is being able to see like, I have a HELOC on this house. I have credit card access here. I have a line of credit here. My ability to go out and get money is in the millions. My actual cash is probably like 20 grand or something stupid because all of my real cash is productive. It's in a fund, it's in real estate. It's somewhere being productive. And I think the, I don't like getting above 75% leverage. So my LTV on everything is around 75%. And that's another topic. We can go into that if you want. But to me, get rid of cash, put that cash in an asset, but, but hang on to the access. With business, you, you said there's a little bit of difference between cash on hand. Do you guys have more cash just sitting in a bank account or you still have the same philosophy, just more reserves for your business? We have about three months of non-variable expenses. And what I mean by non-variable is like, that doesn't count ads that counts like the building and payroll. So we have 90 days to, if, if like everything shuts down and we literally can't make any money, we have 90 days to keep everyone employed and figure it out. And 90 days is a long time to figure it out. I mean, just think about how long we were locked down for and you realize how long 90 days is, you know, because we had a shutdown of like 60 or 70 days and it was like, oh my God, we're all dying. So some people are still shut down depending on what state you're in. So it's, yeah, but well, yeah. We're, depending on your phase. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you're in California, I mean, China, uh, then you're definitely, yeah, still feeling it. Oh man. I, I want to get political so bad on this show, but I can't. Um, all right. So dude, let's, let's, I'm just going to do some rapid fire. I, I like, there's a lot that I want to cover. So long-term wealth, you talk about yield and time. You want to unpack that for a second? Yeah, those are the, I, I feel like those are the only two things that you have to pay attention to. Uh, you could add a third one, which could be risk. Um, but I think the main thing is, is yield and time. If you have uh, somebody who makes a million dollars a year and everything they're putting that money into has an ROI of, of a multiple of 2%, it's going to take them forever to replace that income. So you want to make sure you, you pay attention to the yield. But I think the reason time is in there is because people with high income get impatient. And they're like, well, I want this in eight months. That's not possible. It's not possible. You're not going to do it. Even if you get a sum of $60 million, eight months is still probably too soon if you want to protect it. So time is, a, is an ingredient in the process. And when you get those two things together, let's say you want to, I want to replace $350,000 a year in passive income. All you do is take the yield and you uh, divide that sum by the yield. So $350,000 divided by 0.12 is going to give you the sum of money 
that you need in an account and then you reverse engineer the time. Does that make sense? Um, that makes sense. And if, if that was fast, I would encourage you to go back. Um, I would also, when I was hearing you talk, um, it's interesting. I live in a world where people like to talk about the what, the investment, but they're not saving any money. So I just want to remind everybody, 100% over a long period of time, over zero is still zero. So it goes back to rule number one is like have yeah. the discipline to actually start saving because most people, I would say 97% of people in America are not saving enough. And, and that, that whole deal is broken because you're not having any money. So that's, I, I love that, man. You talk about risk and you, there's two types of risk. And it's interesting because the, the definition of risk is your chance of loss. And a lot of people, because in my book, I, I'm pretty hard on the stock market and index. And they're like, oh, Caleb, you're anti-risk. No, no, no. I own multiple businesses. You could, you could make the argument that I'm taking a whole lot more risk than you are in your 401k. But it's because I, I understand what you're talking about when you break down the two different types of risk. Can you do that for, for our audience? Uh, you mean the ensemble versus uh, yeah, the linear? Yeah. Um, yeah, 100%. This came out of our elite clients wanting to, um, wanting to know how to protect their money. And by the way, I don't know what Gabe's told you uh, we could give, but we have, I have a whole training on these three rules and risk mitigation. Um, I can give that to your crew and we could probably whip up a URL. We will, we will, we will make that, make sure to check out the show notes and I will do an intro before our interview and, and have people direct us, direct that to cool. the training. Yep. So ensemble risk is what most of the world focuses on. You know, this is your S and P 500, um, your average index, your average return on wall street and ensemble risk basically means uh it's the risk of the entire group over a set amount of time so if you invest a hundred thousand dollars and i invest a hundred thousand dollars and someone else invests a hundred thousand dollars total invested is three hundred thousand dollars let's say you double your money i break even and the other person loses everything then the multiple attached on that let's just do the math that would be a hundred thousand dollar gain right uh that would be what, 30%? Yeah, and then zero. <laughs> yeah, so they're gonna give you a multiple and it's gonna be a fake multiple. Like right. it's not gonna be real. It's great if you're Caleb, but it's bad if you're the person that invests and loses everything. And so when you look at the S&P, the, the, the thing that protects the S&P is they remove the, the losers. And so they're constantly rebalancing the, the S&P. It's still a fake multiple. Because you could be the person that invests everything over six months, you lose it, and you pull it out, it doesn't, doesn't do any good. Linear risk is the ability to actually control the odds. So if you invest into it, this is, this is why people are like, well, Warren Buffett's in the stock market. No, he's not in the stock market. He's not. He's buying the company. So he is, he is participating in linear risk, not ensemble risk. He's looking at the company. Here's all of the odds of this company, and I'm going to actually inflict my choices on this company to produce a return. Yep. Okay. I, I, love, I love control. Um, I, in my book, I call it the ninth one of the world because everyone wants to talk about compound interest, but quite yep. frankly, the person that understands how to control capital, because look at what yep. the banks are doing. They're like, they are institutions that are masters at getting money to flow to them, and they just control capital better than the average person. That's yep. why they have all the nice buildings. Yep. Um, Love, love that, man. Um, real quick, the difference between hedging and diver diversification, it goes back to those two types of risk. Yep. Hedging, uh, well, first of all, diversification is what people, they think it's hedging. Um, but if you have 
you know, four bad stocks and a good stock and you diversify between, you're not hedged there. That's just bad. You might as well put it on the one stock. Hedging is when you look at the downside of an investment, what are the chances I could lose money here? And you invest something in something else that is safe and productive that will match the downside of what you're investing in. Um, so we are completely hedged, dude. It is almost, almost asterisk, you know, caveat, et cetera, et cetera, almost impossible for us to lose money inside. It's almost impossible, but we're not diversified. We're only, we're, we're diversified inside of a subset of investment classes, which is real estate. So real estate and the stock market and every investment is possible to hedge. The problem with what I think the problem is with stocks is it's so hard to hedge the stock market because you have to have options and puts and you have to short things. Whereas with real estate, you can hedge the markets against each other and you're not diversified. Hedging is a better form of protection. And I want to dig deeper on that, but I'm not going to. So maybe in the training or maybe we'll have you back on because there, there's a lot of, of, there's a lot there. And I, I yeah. saw what you're personally doing and how you're hedging and it's, and it's brilliant. Um, a couple, couple other things before we wrap up. I love this idea, like in our country, we think debt is such like a dirty word. And, and it's, it's crazy the financial illiteracy that we have as a country because you, you said something that's like, duh, but it's like, like, trust me, I'm talking to a lot of people and they don't get this. It's like the person that's trying to save 4% versus tr thinking about making 9%. And we're seeing so many people when it comes to student debt, mortgages. I mean, I just want to just rapid fire here. What, what do you want to talk to about the person that has student debt, who wants to pay off their mortgage quickly, who has this mindset of like, I want to be debt free. You're broke at the end of the day. Like, like talk to me about how you think about this idea of making versus paying and when it comes to debt. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to be debt free if that's something that you grew up with. Um, just like there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, you know, your dad was something and, or he had something or he worked in some line of work. And so you want to work in a certain line of work. I think that the important piece is that you understand math and if you can attribute why you want that goal. And most people in America can't do math and that's the problem. So like being debt free, it's fine. Um, but the chances are that, you know, if you do the math, then you're going to, you're going to be less generous. You're going to, you're going to have less resources to help other people. You're going, there's a lot of costs to being debt free that people don't talk about because they are not using the system. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the person who's like, um, you know, I'm just, I don't want to work out because there's a risk of energy. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but there's a trade-off there. If you, if you're not physically, you know, if you're not pushing yourself, like you, there is such a thing as not having enough risk. There's no risk. And so what do we get when there's no risk to the body? Atrophy, your body atrophies. There's a, there's a part of our minds in our bodies that we are designed to run. We're not designed to sit and, and some things we're designed to run from. There's got to be a little bit of risk or the, the central nervous system just shuts down. And so I think people's problems with debt is they make it religious or they learn from somebody and it's like, look, do math, practice math. Well, and that's why I like going back to return on result. If you get super clear on what financial success looks like for you, then get ultra clear on what you need to do with your cash flow assets and debts. And, and it's not, it's not, the goal is not to be debt free unless that's ultimately your, your greatest goal, which I would challenge that. It's you yeah. want to make sure that your cash flow assets and debts are aligned in such a way so that you can live your life today and in the future. 
and control has a lot to do with that. Um, what, what I find really interesting about you is you have a really deep understanding of whole life. I'm wondering if you can touch on that and how whole life insurance plays a role in what you're doing in the empire that you're building. Yeah, well, you have to have insurance or I guess you don't have to, but, um, you know, two people on my staff in the last year, their, um, their fathers have passed away and they didn't have any insurance. And I'm just like, I'm not going to do that to my family or my daughter. You know, we're going to have more. I'm not going to do that. Um, you have to have insurance. If you care about the people around you, you have to have insurance. So really, I think the difference between, you know, a Dave Ramsey approach, which is all term, everything else is a waste versus whole life is, uh, do you want to be the type of person who can really leverage the money that you're putting into something? Or do you want it to just be a cost that you have to pay and you can't get anything back out of it? Um, because whole life is permanent and term is not. And we fill up our whole life policies and then we leverage the cash from them to put into other things. We're essentially creating our, our own bank to an extent. I think that it's so complicated, dude. Like, and this is, you probably know way more about this than I do, but my challenge with it has been like, it's so complicated to explain that people are just like, well, I'm just going to put money in term because they understand like I have a car payment, I have a house payment, and I have an insurance payment. It's like the same thing. It's like, no, no, no. You know, you can actually get the money back out of that if you do something more permanent and you set it up the right way. You know? Yeah, I, I explain it as it's the only paper asset that allows your money to grow conservatively the rest of your life, protects you and allows your dollars to be leveraged at the same time. And I agree. A lot of people are are uh, overcomplicating it. My book is called The And Asset because it's really the only paper asset that you can do both. And, and also it can work as a hedge to uh, business and other investments. And so yep. I love that. Oh man, there's so many other things I want to talk about. I want to take a jab at Dave Ramsey. You, I have to say, you're probably the, the quite opposite of what he teaches. What are you, what are you, what's your message to the person that is like, a Christian or wants to do the right thing, wants to be a good steward, listening to Dave Ramsey and is just having a panic attack right now hearing you speak. So I used to, I used to have like, as our influence has grown and as our empires have gotten bigger, Dave's office is like 10 minutes from here. Um, we have two staff on our team who used to work for Dave Ramsey. And, um, you know, the, the chances of, of us, uh, some, the chances of us surpassing him in the next three years are very good. And I say that to say the bigger we've gotten, the more I've understood him and the less I have really jabbed at him and the more I've understood him. What you have with Dave Ramsey is you have a certain level of training that's designed for a certain level of human. And that certain level of human has an intelligence that is lower than the type of person that we want to cater to. And it's like people are listening to that like, Taylor, that's insulting. No, it's not insulting if your intelligence is not high enough to understand like, let's just be real about life and the way of things. So you have a guy who lost everything because he wasn't hedged. Um, and so now he teaches that you, you shouldn't have debt because he reads one verse in the Bible and he extrapolates a whole theology around it. But here's not, is this not the problem with that is you get into a marriage and that person cheats on you. And so you become a marriage counselor teaching people not to get married. That is the exact, it's, it's the perfect, it's exactly the same analogy. Um, I do not agree with a lot of the things that uh, Ramsey teaches because his theology ultimately is a theology of fear. 
And I don't think that that's necessarily a biblical context for preaching the, the anti-debt. I will say, though, that for 90% of Americans who are in complete and total bondage, then the, the training from Ramsey has a place. And it's very important and very necessary. If I were sitting down to have lunch with Ramsey, um, then it would just be a conversation that we would probably agree on the thing on, on everything. Uh, but the way he goes about things is really teaching a certain level of person yep. and we want to teach a different level of person. You know what I, I mean? Yeah. I love that answer. hundred percent agree with that. Last question, last day on earth, you're with the people that you love the most. What are you going to pass down on the things that you've learned up into this, up until today? What are you going to pass down to your family, your loved ones and just your ex- life experience? Uh, life is about being appropriate and the right thing always pays dividends that you can't really get anywhere else. I think that there's a lot of areas in our business that we could have grown faster, but it would have compromised uh, our commitment to the right thing. And the long game, in the long game, the best strategy is the right thing. And that sounds way too simple, but most things that are profoundly effective are much simpler than people want them to be. Taylor, you're, you're a blessing, man. Thank you for bringing the heat. And I really, really appreciate your friendship. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.